0: Man, and we serve a risen Savior, do we not? What an exciting life you and I get to live in Christ Jesus, who changes everything for us. And we come together today as the family of God to celebrate all of that incredible change that He's done for us in our life. We have been bought back, we have been redeemed, and indeed the tomb is empty, is it not? Man, what an exciting time (laughs) we have to celebrate Jesus Christ Not only today, Easter Sunday, that the world sets apart to recognize that there was an empty tomb, but every single day of our life. We do that very thing as we let the world know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that risen Savior. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 to start out with this morning, and I hope you've got your Bibles and will turn with me there. We'll be there in just a few moments, and all of our text, of course, will be on the screen. I do know that we've got some uh, fresh new faces in the audience. I want to say welcome if you're a guest with us this morning. Thank you for joining us Being a part of our time together, we're truly honored that you're here. And our hope is that you've seen Christ in our midst this morning as we sang hymns to that risen Savior. In a moment, we'll dig into the word of God and then gather around the Lord's table toward the end of our time together this morning. Our hope as well would be if you're looking for a church home, and we'd like for you to think about maybe Crosspoint being that place for you. To join us, our family right here, this light on the hill in Grand Prairie, to help tell that story of hope that is Jesus Christ. We'd love to have you as part of our group right here. Uh, at cross point. Well, we, uh, next week we'll start a brand new series on relationships and over three or four weeks, we're going to unpack and talk about, uh, our life in Christ. But what does that look like in parenting? What does that look like, uh, as, uh, we raise teenagers? What does that look like for my marriage? What does that look like if I'm single and not married? So we want to invite you back next week as we launch that series and be with us over the next few weeks as we see how we're called to live in Christ in each one of those moments. Today, we're finishing up our series called Love My Life. And the idea is that we love our life in Jesus Christ, that he absolutely rocked our world, changed everything for us. And because of what he's done for us, our life is one that looks differently to the world around us. He's called us to love. He's called us... Uh, to live graciously and generously. He's called us to be formed in him, spiritually speaking. He's called us to worship him every single day of our life, not just on Sunday morning. And today we're going to talk about sharing the story. What does it mean for us to get our hands, our hearts, our minds wrapped around what Jesus Christ did for us? And how should that change the way that we live our life each and every day? But before we get to our text this morning, I need to do a little backstory to let you know where we're at in the text, because it's Passover week, and the disciples, along with thousands of other people, have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover event, just like they do every year, but this year will be different, and Jesus is in the upper room with uh, his disciples and their families and they're gathered around a table to eat a meal together, the Passover meal, and it's a, a moment that takes hours to move through this meal. As they gather around that table, there will be eating and drinking. There will be storytelling. There will be laughter. There will be tears. There will be singing, scripture reading. I mean, it's it's everything in one evening, and it's a beautiful event. The patriarch of the family in our story, in our context, is Jesus. He's the presiding male in the room. And he will retell the story from the Exodus event in the Old Testament in great fashion. And there are stops and pauses along the way in the story to partake of food, to to drink some watered wine, to share in the storytelling as well. It's going to be a great night. This particular Passover, though, is is very different. Because Jesus says, as he lifts up that unleavened bread, as he lifts up the cup that they will drink together, he says, starting tonight, this is going to be something different for you. The bread and the cup will represent actually my life, which is going to be given for you. And the disciples have no idea what's coming. Jesus, of course, does. It's in that upper room that that they consolidate their friendship, that they laugh together, that he challenges them in lots of different ways. As a matter of fact, it's in that upper room around that table that he says it's by your love for one another that the world is going to know that you're my disciples. It's in that very room that Jesus takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, and he bends down on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. It's in that room where he takes that Passover emblem that's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and says, tonight, these elements will become something different for you. And that story plays out for you and I today as well. So they finished up their time around the table. The meal is done. It's late into the evening and they leave the upper room and they walk down a dark street they walk through the city gate and finally end up in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where our story and our text picks up this morning. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Jesus and the disciples went to the mount to, to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went on a little further and fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he returned and found the disciples asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And they didn't know what to say. It's the setting where Jesus is working through what he's got in store for him. What's just on the horizon, which literally is just an hour or two away for him. The thing that he has been created for, his ministry, his own person. But see, it's Passover. Passover always falls on the 14th of the month. And there's a full moon outside. It always falls on the same time of the month, 14th. It's the equinox. And we know that Jesus, when he left that upper room with his disciples, he walked down that street, through the city gate, down the mountainside. He would have walked across the Kidron Valley, just outside Jerusalem. We also know that all during Passover, thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices had been given Families have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to offer their sacrifice on the Temple Mount for their sin and their family's sin. We also know that during rainy season that there's a stream that runs in the Kidron Valley and all of the blood from those thousands and thousands of sacrifices would have flowed out the Temple Mount, down the valley, into the valley stream. It's interesting to think that that night... On the dark night, with a full moon in the equinox, as Jesus quietly in the dark of the night walks down to the valley floor outside Jerusalem with his disciples, that they would have had to cross the Kidron Valley and quite possibly a bloody stream that's full of blood from sacrifice. It's on their feet now. And they rise on the other side to enter what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's really not a garden. It's really two distinct, different things. But we as Westerners have come up with this name, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Why is that? It's because when you take all the gospel accounts together, that's how you come up with the name. I mean, John says that they went to the other side of the Mount of Olives. Luke says that it was a a cultivated plot, a garden spot. Mark and Matthew say, simply just call it Gethsemane. And when you put all of the gospel accounts together, we come up as Westerners with the idea, the garden of Gethsemane. But it's actually two different things side by side. There is a garden and there is Gethsemane. See, Gethsemane translated means olive press. It's that moment where, where we realize it's a, a function of the olive, that, uh, the olive trees that are in the area. And someone owns this press. What does that, that look like? The picture kind of depicts it a little bit. There's a round stone in the area and there's a trough in the middle of that stone. Another circular stone sets on its edge And during harvest season, maybe a donkey or a person pushes that stone around the press, crushing the olives that have been put into the trough area. They crush everything, the skin, the pits, the flesh of the olive. And as they crush those olives, the initial olive oil that bubbles to the surface is what we call extra virgin olive oil, and it would have been skimmed off the top because it was special. It was dedicated to God. And once that is collected off the top, the rest of the combination of oil and olive is put into these wicker baskets. And those wicker baskets, once full, they're stacked one on top of each other, a flat stone placed on top. There's a cedar log that is stuck into the end of a wall. You might think of it as a small telephone pole. And on the other end are these very heavy stones that apply pressure and squeeze out all of the olive oil. As the oil runs out of the basket, it enters a hole in the floor, a collection, a a reservoir, if you will. And at the end of the process, the olive flesh... It's much like sawdust. It's all been squeezed out. The pressure that is on the olives is incredibly intense. And as you take a look at Gethsemane, it's the Hebrew word for olive press. Jesus went to a garden that night. Or next to that garden was an olive press. But you see, olives are harvested in the fall, in October or November. And Passover is in the spring. So cultivating, pressing, harvesting the olives is not going on right now during Passover. A lot of scholars believe because... See, there were so many people in Jerusalem at Passover, thousands upon thousands of people. There's no place to stay. It is difficult to find a place to rest, to kind of hunker down for the night, if you will. And a lot of scholars believe that there was a a man who enjoyed Jesus' teaching, enjoyed his ministry, and offered his olive press for Jesus and his disciples to spend the night in. It's not being used right now, Jesus. Why don't you and your disciples take that plot of land that I have just outside of Jerusalem? It's a place where you can get away. A place that you can have for you and your people. And so the night of his betrayal... Jesus leaves the upper room and he walks down that dark street with a full moon out during the equinox. He walks through the gate of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, where he rises into a small cultivated plot, a garden, where he leaves most of the disciples, but then he asks three, Peter, James, and John, to follow him into the olive press area. This is the setting for the Gethsemane story. Now, the night of Passover has a specific name. It's called the night of watching. Why is it called the night of watching? You have to go all the way back to the actual account in Exodus chapter 12 to discover why it's the night of watching. God gives uh, an idea What the Israelites are supposed to do to Moses, who then tells all the Israelites, this is what you are to do. This is a night like no other night you've ever experienced before. It's going to be very special. As a matter of fact, tonight, you will be able to leave the slavery that you've been a part of for 430 years. God is answering your prayers. He's following through on his promises. And so the night of watching, the family picks out a ram... They tie it to the house. And on the 14th, they kill that animal. And they collect the blood of that ram in a basin. And they cook the lamb. The women in the house prepare unleavened bread. Or they're going to have to leave quickly this night. This is the first time it's ever happened. Can you imagine the anxiety among the Jewish people? Moses tells them, you're going to take the blood from that ram and you're going to, to paint it on the doorpost of your home because tonight, God's angel of death is going to pass through your community and the Egyptian community. And if you have blood on your house, the angel is going to pass over your home. If there is no blood on the doorpost of your home, then the angel of death will enter and you will experience the death of your male firstborn human and animal. Imagine the feeling of nervousness after waiting and preparing during the course of the day and you wait into the night feeling nervous as that cool breeze passes from house to house as the angel of death moves through your community. And imagine as you sit there in the dark lit by candlelight in your own home, you hear the distant cries and screams of families who are discovering the death of their firstborn because they chose not to put blood on their doorpost. And as you sit and you listen, you ask yourself the question, will God keep his word? Is his promise to me true? And so all night long you sit and you watch until finally the sun comes up and you realize and discover in the moment that indeed God has watched out for you. Indeed, you have been saved. He has saved you. And in Exodus chapter 13, God tells all of Israel, you're going to replay this every single year from now until eternity. You're going to remember every year the Passover meal, the event that took place where God saved you from the slavery that you were a part of, the moment when he offered you salvation because there was blood on your house. It's because of the blood on your house that you have been saved. And as those Israelites gathered around, the same as Jesus and his disciples and their families in that upper room to to remember and rededicate themselves and be reminded of the promises that God has made to them. They would have read one of the Psalms, Psalm 121, where the psalmist says, "'I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble.'" The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go both now and forever. Reminding... Those who love God, that he keeps his promises. And now Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room. And they've walked down that dark street lit by a full moon, out the city gate, down through the Kidron Valley, up to the garden spot, and then into where the, where the olive press is located. And Jesus says, Peter, James, and John, come with me. And they walked out into the darkness. And he said, watch. Watch. With me. He came back to check on his disciples and they're sleeping. And he asked the question couldn't you stay awake just one hour to watch with me? Didn't you have enough love for me to watch with me in this night of Passover, the moment when the angel of death is going to approach? And Jesus came to watch in the night, but as he watched, something incredible happened to him that's revealed in our text this morning. Because in Mark chapter 14, it says that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. The Hebrew idea there for being deeply distressed is this sudden, shocking awareness of what is right in front of you. What must happen. What is simply right there and it's about to happen to me. Jesus is feeling that part of the process. His human side is kicking in. It also says that he is troubled and it's this idea that he's, he's at the, the point of sheer terror, realizing what he is going to have to go through, what he's going to have to endure for you and for me. The Bible does tell us that Jesus is the Son of God and I believe that. But it also says that he was also human. And tonight, Jesus wrestles with his humanness. As a human man, it's the realization that tonight is the night. The night of all nights. It's the reason why he was born. It is here. It is on my front doorstep. It is right in front of me. Now, the Passover meal in the upper room takes several hours to get through. There's a lot of singing and talking and praying and retelling the stories. some laughter, eating and drinking along the way as well. That patriarch in this moment, Jesus, would be retelling the Exodus story. And throughout the process, they would have been reminded of promises that God had made them in Exodus chapter 6. Every person at the table would have had four cups of watered wine. And throughout the course of the evening, the patriarch, Jesus, in this moment, would have stopped and picked up the first cup and reminded those at the table of God's promise, his first promise, where God said, I will take you out. I'm going to take you out of bondage. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm not going to leave you here anymore. You're coming with me. I will remove you from this moment. The shackles will be loosened, the bonds will be broken. You will come with me. I will take you out. The second cup of promise I will set you free. You will no longer be slaves. You will no longer belong to someone else. I'm going to break the shackles. I'm going to tear down the walls. I'm going to make you as free as you've ever been before. It will be as if the 430 years in the past had never existed. You will be free because of my promise to you. And then the third cup of promise, I will redeem you. God says you may have been sold into slavery. But I am going to buy you back. You may belong to someone else right now, but understand I'm going to pay the price to get you back. I don't want you to be over there anymore. I want you to be with me, which comes to the fourth cup of promise that I will protect you, God says. I will make sure that no one hurts you again because you are my family, you are my sons and daughters. I'm going to redeem you, set you free, take you away from slavery. I'm going to protect you because you are my family. But on the Passover table, there's a fifth cup. The cup sits by itself. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's empty. No one touches it. No one drinks it. But it's there. The prophet Jeremiah talks about it in his own prophetic book. In chapter 25, reminding all of us as created beings that there are nations, there are people who do not proclaim God as the God, the Creator, their Lord. And those who do not take God as their own God, they are going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And as that cup sits on the table empty, the participants around the table often look at the cup and are reminded of the promises that God has made to them to protect. They might talk about Psalm 79 or Psalm 69, where the psalmist reminds God that you have offered us salvation. You have forgiven us. Continue to save your people God, you know my sin, and even though you know my sin, you show me favor. You have redeemed me and bought me back. Thank you, God, for what you have done. The rabbis argued over whether or not the cup, the fifth cup, should be a part of the Passover celebration. They went back and forth on whether or not it should be a part of the table, and They looked at scripture and said, well, it is in the Bible and someday there are going to be those who will have to drink the cup of God's wrath because they've never acknowledged God as their Lord and Savior. There are those who do not acknowledge him as God. The rabbis decided that they could not solve the problem, whether or not it should be on the table or part of the Passover meal or in in, integrated into the story somehow. So they decided to watch and wait until the prophet Elijah came back. Elijah will figure it out. He'll settle the argument when he comes back. And to this day, they have an empty Elijah's cup on every Passover table. Not filled. No one partakes. But it sits there waiting for Elijah to return. And on this night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is thinking about that cup. I mean, what is in the cup? It's God's punishment for the sins of humankind. And as Jesus wrestles with what's coming, what's right in front of him, Jesus realizes in the garden, as he's flat on his face, as he's praying to God Almighty, he realizes, I have to drink the cup. I don't want to drink the cup. Please, God, don't make me drink the cup. I can't. He says, if there's any possible way, God, allow this cup to pass from me. But the very next sentence, Jesus says, however, not my will, but your will be done. This is going to cause me pain. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to... Kill me. But God, this is your plan. This is what we've always planned for. This is the night of all nights. Tonight is the night it comes true. And Jesus turned in that moment and he drank every drop from that cup. And now that cup is empty. The, the cup that you were supposed to drink, the cup that I was supposed to drink, it is now gone. Because Jesus Christ was that sacrificial lamb for you and for me. Church, what a joyful story we have to tell. Jesus in the garden is announcing to the world, I am the Son of God, the Messiah, who takes on the punishment that the world should have received, the punishment for you. And this night in the garden, God looks at His Son and He says, Tonight, there is no protection for you. But because Jesus Christ took our punishment... We have protection under his blood. You think about the Exodus story so long ago. Blood on the doorpost allowed that Passover event to happen. And now for us, the ultimate perfect lamb of God has shed his blood for us. And metaphorically, we have his blood on our doorpost. Therefore, we are not guilty. And the angel of death passes over. Church, we've got a story to tell. Church, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about that story. What about you? We're called to live in such a way to let the world know that Jesus Christ took our place. He gave himself fully for you and for me. And that's why I love my life in Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for me. He went to the cross for me. He took my place. He drank that cup for you And for me. And Paul reminds us of how joyous, incredible, beautiful a story that you and I have in Jesus Christ. He starts in Colossians chapter two, and he says, You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So now, church, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? I mean, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and has raised, was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that we no longer, He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours in Christ Jesus. And I am convinced. That nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God that is revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Church, we got a story to tell. It is an exciting day. Today, as we metaphorically look back into that tomb, the stone has been rolled away and it is empty. Because of that, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. He has conquered all. He's overcome everything for you and for me. And so our lives should be one where we live in grateful appreciation for what he's done for us that text that we all know so very well, the Apostle John writes, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Church, we are loved beyond measure. We, we don't deserve what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ, nonetheless, he did it. And so you and I are called as people who are created in his image to love him with everything that we have, to love our life in Jesus Christ, to realize that the cross means redemption and salvation for all of us. The empty tomb means he's conquered everything that we have come against in life, even death. So this morning we've we've moved communion to the back end of our service time together, and I know the men are going to get up and get trays ready to be passed in just a moment. As those trays are passed, I I want you and I to remember the story of Gethsemane, the story of, of Jesus Christ who went the full measure for all of us. That on that cross his flesh was broken. So that we might be healed. So that we might be whole. So that we might be saved. As the trays are passed here in just a moment, we'll be passing the bread emblem. And whether you break off a piece or you you get a square, I want you to hold it in your hand. We're all going to partake at the same time as a family this morning, not individually. So hang on to that piece when you get it in your hand. And as you wait for others, you might, you might turn it in your hand and think about the different corners of the peace that you have and compare it and think about the cross. Think about Jesus' head. Think about his hands. Think about his feet. Think about the sacrifice that he went through in order for you and I to live eternally with him forever. Church, we, we do this every Sunday. It's a special moment for us to reconcile ourselves to how God's called us to live in his son, Jesus Christ, a reminder of the sacrifices that were made so that you and I could live with him forever. Let's bow together. Father, we come to you this morning, acknowledging that you are the God of the universe. You are the God. There is no other And God, we acknowledge this morning that we are sinful people, that we have failed in many ways. But because we've made a decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of our life, His blood cleanses us, makes us pure, makes us white as snow, and in your eyes we look right. Thank you, God, for that sacrifice. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross But even more so, God, that he had the power to conquer death and now that tomb is empty and we celebrate that very idea right now this morning. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we offer this prayer. Amen.